The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Ryan. <clears throat> well, hope everyone recovered this week from the long week, Super Bowl week. You know, they actually have deemed Monday uh, Super Bowl Monday now because of so many people who skip work after Sunday, last Sunday. Um, but, you know, in um, gosh, 60 years ago, 1960, the Green Bay Packers played uh, the Philadelphia Eagles in what was one of the big championships, NFL championships. And in that time, uh, the Green Bay Packers were heralded as uh, one of the greatest teams. Even though the Eagles came in 10-2, uh, and two, only two losses, the Packers were still favored. Well, in that game, the Packers end up losing. And uh, it was a devastating loss for the Green Bay Packers. Their head coach, Vince Lombardi, um, was uh, saddened by the loss and said he was you know, looking forward to training camp that would start that summer. Training camp comes around in the summer where uh, the team is reunited. They start going through warm-ups, practice, getting ready for the, the next season. And he gathers the team together, and he says to them, and, and as many people were questioning, what is he going to say to them? How is he going to begin that speech? How do you begin training camp after this devastating loss? What do you do? Do you, do you have a whole new scheme? Do you have a new offense, a new defense? Bring in new coaching staff? It was said that Vince Lombardi held up a pigskin, and he said, men, this is a football and one of the wide receivers joked and laughed and said, uh, sorry, coach, you're going too fast. Could you slow down for a second? And Coach Lombardi grinned and then kept going. And from that point, he began to say, this is what it means to tackle. This is what it means to block. And on and on and on in such a fashion of uh, taking a step back to teach them, what does it really mean to play football? Let's get back to the beginning. Let's go to the very beginning. This is a football. 
And as many of them thought, oh, yeah, I know that. Do you really? It was this that would spur on the Green Bay Packers to win the next five out of seven championships. It was going back to the fundamentals, going back to the basics. They went backwards in order to go forwards. Look, when when I first, we talk every week with our staff. Uh, We open up the passage and look at it on Monday in our staff meetings. And uh, our staff, the four of us, were sitting around looking at this particular passage and we had nothing. Like there, if you read this passage, you may like catch some names that are familiar to you, but there were, most of the time we're asking questions and those kind of things. The, the question that came out was, what is going on here? <laughs> and in fact, I myself was looking at it and was saying, you know, I'm not sure. I really don't know. As much as I wanted to have answers, I wanted to, like, what's going on? It was encouraging to me as I really began to dive into my study of this passage uh, that commentators themselves say, this is one of the most difficult passages of the letter of Galatians that we've been looking at. One of the most complex. And so, really for me, instead of trying to run forward, sometimes where a passage, uh, if you ever want to know kind of what what a, at least me, your preacher does when he uh, prepares a sermon, instead of looking at it and trying to to think of answers, I went back to the basics. I went back to the beginning. I do what I do every week and printed out the passage, and I sit there and I write it. I mark it up. And instead of just asking like higher level thinking questions, I begin to ask just the basic, this is a football questions. (laughs) Who's Hagar? Who's Sarah? What's going on in this passage? I can't begin to think that I know everything that's going on in this and make it so complex. See, that's what Paul is actually trying to do in this passage. And the more I unpacked it, the more I studied it, the more I understood what he's trying to do. He's trying to help the Galatians, this church that he started, who have no Jewish roots whatsoever through the history of how the gospel, the good news of Jesus got to them. And no better way than to begin at the very beginning, not just to start where they are, but to go over the very beginning of where the promise begins to Abraham, all the way back. Paul's taken to the beginning in order to understand where they are, in order to understand where they move forward from there even. They have to go way back to the beginning and make it as simple as possible. And some, and some think that what Paul's actually doing is laying out an argument for them because the people that came behind Paul after he planted and began this church said to the people in Galatia, this church, they said, eh, you gotta work on it. Like Christianity is, is, is what it is. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you gotta do your part. You gotta own it. It's, you gotta pick up your part of the deal. And it means you got to do this better, think this way, own these rituals better, be this better person. And Paul's saying, no, 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 they don't understand that even where they came from, let's use the argument of going all the way back to the beginning. This is Christianity. This is what it means. So that's what we're going to look at this this morning. We're going to look at what is called redemptive history. And what redemptive history is, is really what it sounds. God's story of rescuing his people all the way through history. That's what we're going to look at. 
and those two points. And we're going to reverse them a little bit. We're going to look at history and redemption because that's kind of how Paul is working here. But we're going to look at redemptive history or historical redemption. What does it mean for us to know that we are Christians? Is it just something we're kind of born into? Is it something we just like pick up? Or is it more than that? So let's look at that as Paul begins in verse 21, the historical pattern, the history behind this. Just tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. What in the world's going on there? (laughs) For centuries... And even now, people have connected their faith to a a specific individual, especially this one named Abraham. And that's what he's appealing to. Historically, he's saying, look, faith is connected to Abraham. Uh, Abraham is in his lineage. As a rabbi, Paul knows that his entire basis of what it meant to be a rabbi, his training, everything, came from the beginning all the way back in the beginning of the Bible to Father Abraham. Many of you may have heard those songs before in some funny or strange way. Father Abraham had many sons. You remember those Sunday school-ish type songs? Some of you may remember those. Those of you that don't know that song, you're spared of some things. But that's kind of where he's going. And he's appealing. He's doing something that's absolutely genius here. He's appealing to the Old Testament history to answer the question, how are we really Christians? How are we really made a part of God's family? And he does something which is, is, is unpacked. And even when I was reading more and more commentaries that layered on this, they were, they were saying that this, is, this looks almost like an old uh, rabbinical Jewish argument that's been used in years past. So even those people that came in after Paul to tell all the Galatians, eh, you don't really know what it means to live in Christianity. They would read this and recognize it. This was not just for the Galatian church, but it was for those who thought they knew what it meant to be a part of the family of God. And the history of this goes all the way back to Genesis 15, 16, and 17, where God actually makes a promise to Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram. And he brought him out. So you know the context. It's, it's really important to know the context, right? Brought him out of a certain land and said, I'm, gonna, I'm making you a promise. I'm gonna make you a father of many nations. You're gonna have a child, you and your wife, Sarah. And at the time, they were in their 80s. They were thinking, whoa, how, how can we be this old and have children? But God said, I'm gonna make that promise true and sure for you. But as time went on, it says this in chapter 16 of Genesis it says, now Sarai, that was their name before God changed their names. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant and that it may be, and that we may obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So what happens here? This context is where Sarah and Abraham began to see that, is God's promise really sure? 
Who keeps it up? See, when it says here in verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, what that means is God may have made a promise, but the flesh is us saying we have to fulfill it. So Sarah and Abram decide a great plan. We're going to have, well, God's plan. And we read it. It's hard sometimes because when you read verses like this, it skips, right? But what we don't see is the many, many, many days, months, years stretched out between these verses where there's this longing, this waiting. God, are you really going to fulfill this promise? It even says here, 10 years go by, a decade, a decade of life happens between these verses. And they wonder, God, is your promise for real? Is there a real promise that's to be fulfilled or is it in us? And so Abram and Sarah put it on themselves to make this promise happen. And then as opposed to, as it says in verse 23, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise, the promise that was made. And here's the argument. The argument is Paul is appealing to the history of Abe Abraham, that is. The history of Abraham with the two children. He's saying there are two lines of God's children. One is a son that was born in flesh by them trying to make God's promise happen themselves. But one is they're waiting for God to fulfill it. One's name was Ishmael. One was Isaac. And here's the question. To be a child of Abram, to be a child of Abraham, does it mean you have to fulfill your end of the deal? That's what Paul's asking them. That's what he's asking us. Is it by your flesh or is it by mine? Or is it by God's promise? When God promises something, will he fulfill it? See, that's the question here. That's what he's appealing to for the people in that church and all the people arguing with him is that at the very beginning when God makes his promise, here are two lines, two arguments that you can try and make the promise happen yourself or you can see if God really fulfills what he says. And he's setting it up. And this is what we know to be true, that when he appeals to this argument by history, He's saying, as Abraham does, we can, by flesh, try and make our faith in our faith. Our faith in our faith. That is, in many of our circles, especially when it comes to Christianity, right? And maybe in this time and place, I'm not sure where all of you are. Many of you in this room may be uh, long, consider yourselves longtime followers of Jesus. And some of you may be coming in asking a question, what is this like again? How how do I really re-engage with God? What is the church? Some of you are cynical or or burned by what the church means to you or what it means to be in a relationship with God. But I think across that spectrum, the question is always this. Is my faith in God or is my faith in my faith? Because when it comes to me hearing about a relationship with God, does God just say, I exist, here I am, I've given you Jesus, here's grace, here's redemption, but it's up to you to make it work. And that's typically what we do when we terms to the flesh. I heard a a commentator, uh, like a cultural commentator say one time that, and I love this illustration, that American Christianity can often look like a golden retriever, you know? Uh, That we look at God in that way, that God is like a golden retriever to us. He's he's this sweet, uh, you know, always present there when you need him, 
but not really that powerful to do anything other than just be a part of your life. Sometimes it makes you happy, sometimes it's a pain, sometimes it's costly, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's a part, you know, just everydayness, just sweet, sentimental, great. I do think there's so much to that with us. When we look at our faith, our Christianity, that we can look at it like, you know, this is great and all. And that's when we get tired of doing it. Because we come to church, we enter in this relationship with God, and we start reading the Bible, and we start praying, and we start going to church, and we start getting involved in connect groups. And and then somewhere along the way, we find ourselves going, and this is a lot of work to keep this up. And we think that Christianity, we think that a relationship with God is about God makes this promise to us, but we got to fulfill it. We got to make sure it's our end of the deal too. And that's putting our faith in our faith. That's when we believe, if I feel close to God, if I feel like I'm working enough, if I'm putting enough in, then I should get enough out of it. Isn't that what it is? Some have labeled this moral therapeutic deism. I don't know if you've heard that term before. <clears throat> but essentially moral, God wants people to behave. Therapeutic, God wants people to be happy and well-adjusted. And deism, that there is a God. He is around. He's made this world. He's given us all these things. But he kind of gives us his, you know, keeps us at a distance. So we, he wants us to behave. He wants us to do the right thing. But he's not really active or present in our lives. It's kind of up to you. God, as you may have heard the term, God is my co-pilot. Right? But is that what it is? That's what he's trying to draw out to them. That it's not about a promise, that God just makes a promise and says, okay, now it's your turn. And that's what it means to work by flesh. But it means waiting. And that's one of the most difficult things. Waiting to, to know and, and believe. Does God really fulfill what he says? When it says, and one by the slave woman, one, uh, one by a slave woman, one woman, and one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through the promise. The promise is the complete opposite of that. The promise is waiting for God to fulfill his end of the deal. Not ours, but his. And that is the most difficult. Think about the decade again. Think about what it says in Genesis 16 when it says, when, when Sarah says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. Uh, and, and then it says in verse 3, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. 10 years. And that's how it can feel for us. Is to go, does God really mean what he says? Is he really a God who fulfills what he says to us in his word? Because the waiting is so difficult. How does he handle our lives? How does he hold us with care historically? How does he do that? Paul is appealing to this story to show them that God, even back then, is saying that the, the word, the good news has gotten to their ears because God has fulfilled his promise. Are we children of Abraham because our blood is the same with his? Or are we children with Abraham because our faith is the same as his? That he looks forward for God to 
produce these things. Not that there's not gonna be tension, not that there's not gonna be things that fall, not that we're not gonna feel like, God, have you abandoned us? Can you imagine Sarah's excitement and joy when she first hears the news, and so does Abram. Oh, you're gonna have a son, you're gonna have a child. And they're amazed, they're thinking, us, we will? But soon as the months and years go by, their joy turns to tension, and their tension to difficulty, and their difficulty to say, you know what, maybe it's really up to me. And then it's when God comes in to say, no, it's all on me. There's even a Jewish historian who's written a lot about this kind of reversal. His name is Robert Alter. He actually writes a lot about how in the Old Testament we find a pattern of God taking over and over the story of what we think should be. And instead of trying to say, yes, you go ahead and do it, that he reverses that. That he says, instead of the older getting all of the, 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 which would be Ishmael in this, instead of the older one getting all of the inheritance, it's gonna be the younger one. Instead of the one who has all of the, the, the gifts and skills, it's gonna be the one who has none of them. That God over and over historically is reversing the understanding of how we think God works. That if God makes a promise and we put in our end of the deal, then it's gonna be fulfilled. But what the Bible is saying from the very beginning of the promise is that God's promise is fulfilled by his word and by his hands. And how we know it's true is that he not only brings about Isaac, his son, but Jacob and Joseph. And on and on and on. Even this line continues. It never stops. And that's why he goes on to not only use this as a historical argument, but a redemptive one. He says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. He he moves from not only this argument historically, but redemptively. He starts using these names and places and events that span, and even the the quote there is from Isaiah. It doesn't even match. It's way further beyond the life and, and times of Abraham. It's in Isaiah when the people of God were captive. And they're saying, God, where are you? He's spanning across the whole of history to say God's pattern of the way that he fulfills these things happens over and over. It's not just at the very beginning at the one historical promise, but it's redemptive. How do we interpret this? It's a historical pattern. It's not a new concept, actually. The idea of redemption, the idea of us wanting to be redeemed, there's a a TED talk that it talks about this in such a fascinating way. It's, it's labeled two kinds of stories that we tell about ourselves. So Northwestern University of Psychologist, it talked about we create narrative identities. Fascinating. Then we created a narrative identities of two kinds of stories. 
One is redemptive stories, those things that lead from negative parts of our life into positive ones, that we want to edit and create and uh, go into the cutting room floor and begin, when we tell our stories and somebody asks about us, to move from a negative to a positive. And that's what we always see. We, we look on TV and we watch and hope for people to have these redemptive stories and we see them. But then there are also what they call contamination stories. And those are the ones that move from positive to negative. Those are the ones where we see great height to great downfall. And the the whole point of the TED Talk is how do we create better redemptive stories for ourselves? Because psychological testing proves that if you have good redemptive stories, that you can have a better life and contribute better to society. Now, that is all great and true, but here's what they say, and here's the the linchpin of what this TED Talk was saying, is if you can learn to edit your story and edit it well, then you can begin begin living the life that you should. Look, this is not a, a new concept. This is something, that, if, if, gosh, even recently, I was, uh, I don't know if you saw the new Star Wars movie, but there were all these articles out about this Star Wars movie, uh, good, bad, whatever. But one of the themes I saw over and over was that the, one of the main villains, Kylo Ren, there was constantly questions of, is Kylo Ren gonna be redeemed? Does he need a redemption story? I mean, it, that, that's just a part of the water that we swim in. People want to see these from negative to positive stories because we know that there has to be that. But how do we get there? Is it by our own edits? Or is it by something deeper? And that's what Paul is getting at. When he starts labeling Hagar and earthly Jerusalem, what he's getting at is he's saying, there is an earthly, fleshly type way that we want to make the right edits. And isn't that exactly the perfect language of what we do. If, even in religious ways, that's what he's even saying. Look, Jerusalem was the capital city for religiosity, was where everything came out of. But he's saying there's an earthly Jerusalem that if we're trying to live in, if we want our narrative arc to be something beautiful and perfect and right, it's up to us to make the right edits and put all those things in place. Be they may religious Christian language or things. And isn't that what we want to do? I mean, we could could put this in very modern terms. Is our Christian life the perfect Instagram story? Is it? Is that what we long for it to be? Or is the pattern of redemption in the Bible of those who are not those, those who are are, are struggling to be free, but those who are now freed to struggle. Isn't that what you and I feel all the time? I feel it constantly, emotionally, tangibly, mentally, uh, practically, in work, and family, and everything else, constantly knowing that I want to make the right edit so I can stop struggling to be free. I want to be free. I want to be liked. I want to be brought in. I want to be cherished. I want to be valued. I want my story to move from a negative to a positive. Don't you? But how does that happen? When do we rest from making the edits over and over? As the, my, one of my favorite theologians, Dave Matthews said, right, in Ants Marching, if that dates me, I don't care. 
Ants marching, he said what? Make the right cuts. Cut, cut. Try not to offend. Try to be good with everybody. But doesn't that wear you out? See what Paul's doing? He's, he's, he's drawing us up into not just, hey, here's the historical narrative, but here's the redemptive picture that there's gotta be someone who edits our story in a different way because we can't make it perfect. That's why he talks about <clears throat> the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Do you know the story that he's responding to? He's talking about a group of people who are in captivity. They're oppressed. When you're in oppression, where in the world do you find hope? When you're feeling beaten down, where do you find that you can make any edits When they're in captivity, what do they look forward to? Is the kingdom of God about those who have everything straight or is it different? Are the halls of the kingdom of God filled with the downtrodden and desolate? Those in despair and difficulty. Those who are in pain and longing. Didn't they long to be free? As I was preaching in a a prison uh, some time ago, after I, it was such an amazing opportunity to be able to preach to a group of prisoners and feel just the tension of what does it really mean for me to talk about the freedom of the gospel when you have none? Now, be it, yes, they are in prison for their things that they've been caught for, crimes, whatever it may be. We seemingly be, are free because we're not in those walls. But you know what? one of the prisoners said to me afterwards was he said I feel really sorry for most people outside these walls because they're a lot less free than me and as much as I was supposed to be preaching to them this man preached to me about the idea and understanding and reality that redemption isn't necessarily some sort of editing that we make. It is about the editor that comes in. It's about the one who comes to make the downtrodden, the desolate, as it says in verse 27. That's what he fills the halls of his kingdom with. That's the, the one who makes the story. We're not having to struggle to be free. We're now free to struggle within the promise And here's what's beautiful about this. In John chapter eight, you flip all the way forward, thousands of years, John chapter eight, Jesus is having an argument with some people over what freedom means. And what does it mean to be in the lineage of Abraham? Same exact conversation. In verse 31, it says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And listen to their answer. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? This isn't just an Old Testament argument. 
It's an argument that Jesus had. It's an argument that Paul had. It's the same one we have. If we just know that we have the right blood, if we make the right edits, if we know that we're in the lineage of Abraham, we're okay. Just because you've grown up as a Christian, does that mean you are one? Because you find yourself in the walls of a church or in the pages of a Bible, does that make you a Christian, follower of Jesus? Is your faith in your faith or is it further? Because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And listen to how he answers them. They say, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophet's Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. How do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said, I, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, and I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, listen to this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day And he saw it and was glad. You know what this table is? This is us seeing that day. When Jesus was trying to get them to see what real freedom is, it isn't the perfect edits that we can make in our lives. It isn't just because you stand in here. Nothing in these walls makes you any more of a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. But being here, what it means to be free and the Son indeed, it means you find yourself in Him. That the great story, the great story arc is that your story has been taken up into His. It's not about Abraham and being having the faith of Abraham, it's the one in whom Abraham had faith in. As he looked forward and saw Jesus and was glad, and I know that word says glad, and we may take that language like, oh, he's glad. It's a much bigger term of of satisfaction, gladness. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. My friends, you see it. You can see here at this table what it means. This is the full spectrum of redemptive history. This is a historical meal. We we observe something that is rooted in history and time and space. When they gathered around tables and they would have bread and wine and, and, and discuss these things and specifically at that meal, Jesus broke the bread and poured the wine. And but he, what he was doing, he wasn't just celebrating a meal. He was representing and showing that this is a representation of his story that envelops and takes up yours. That if you want to make sense of yours and to find freedom to struggle rather than continuing to struggle to make the edits, to cut the right things on the cutting floor to make your whole story look beautiful, you can find it beautiful in the one who is the chief editor that is God through Jesus Christ. That's how we come to this table. In a minute, we're going to read from a 
prayer together, a confession. And it's going to ask the question how we have a right to dine at this table. And as we do, I want you to pay attention to the words. Let your heart soak in that story that you're going to repeat together as a congregation. So let's stand now.